0: This is Car Expert.
1: I'll have some healthy scepticism about what BYD is doing, but looking at this vehicle and looking at its plans, I think there's definitely some scope for enthusiasm too.
2: I just can't believe you can build a car with this much performance, with this much kit for 160
3: grand. I've been in the world of car photography for 20 years now, so I've seen multiple trends. What I do in a game is to try to recreate some of the more current
1: trends.
0: Hello, my name's Mandy Turner. G'day, Mike Costello.
1: Hello, Mandy Turner. How are you?
0: I am great, thank you. And hello, (laughs) Scott Collie.
4: Hello, guys.
0: Got to admit, we're all we all live in Melbourne at the moment, and it's very exciting because this weekend, for the first time in two years, the Melbourne or the Australian Grand Prix is back, baby. Are, Are you guys going?
4: I'm actually not going to be there. Um, And I also just realized, even though I suggested this intro topic, that this is going live after the Grand Prix is won. So congratulations to... It's your name. (laughs) We'll drop a name in there. Um, But no, um I'm not going to get there this year.
1: We've Pretty. given away uh, the secrets of, of how this show is made behind the scenes, like we actually pre record it. Um, I will be there, actually. I'll, I'll be there only on quality right. day, unfortunately. Um, so, I'll be there uh, Friday, representing yeah. uh, Saturday, so that should be fun. Okay. Um, it's going to be brilliant to get back there. It's an amazing event. We've missed it sorely, um, mm. and, uh, you know, it's just, it's one of the high points of the calendar year for anyone who's an enthusiast of things on four wheels, particularly if you live just
4: up the road like I do. (laughs) It's also – it's going to be really cool to see the reprofiled track that's faster, it's wider, it's better cambered in some spots. The cars look fantastic. So, one of the criticisms of the Aussie GP has always been – that, yeah, qualifying is great, it's a cool event, but the race can sometimes be a procession. It's -hmm. going to be really interesting. And, again, by the time you're listening to this, we'll know whether it's worked or not, but I can't wait to find out how all of the new cars and track bits have come together to actually make for hopefully better racing.
0: I actually didn't know that the the track was changing. Why did they decide to do that? Do you know?
4: So there are a couple of sections there. Um, The complex between, I believe, turns 7 and 10, which is sort of the fast back section into the chicane, around the golf course at Albert Park. Um, That they've made faster so they can add a DRS zone in there and so cars can follow more closely because I think previously the way it was set up wasn't quite right for cars to run closely and get close enough to overtake into the slow braking point. And then a couple of the corners have been made wider with a more aggressive camber on the road so that it's easier for cars to take different lines and to overtake and get a cleaner run out of there because – Previously, there was only one real correct line onto another of the straights, and if you got that wrong, you couldn't set yourself up to overtake. So, a lot of work's gone into it. The Drivers Corporation, Daniel Ricciardo and some of the other F1 drivers, Mark Scaife and some of his team have been involved, um, and they've, they've redone a fair chunk of Albert Park now. It's been resurfaced as well, so it should make for interesting racing.
0: Okay, let's get stuck into this week's podcast. <laughs> this week's car news. Now, this news I think was released on April Fool's Day and I actually thought if it may have been a joke, Moko, the Toyota GR Corolla <laughs> has been revealed and is coming here.
1: There were a few uh, pessimistic types who swore black and blue that this wasn't going to come here because the whole narrative around the Toyota GR Corolla has been North America because they don't get the GR Yaris there and they needed a hot hatch. But nope, this is absolutely coming to Australia. It's built in Japan in the same GR plant as the Yaris. So it was an absolute no-brainer. And holy moly, this thing is extraordinary. Toyota is on an absolute roll. We were blown away by the GR Yaris, which is essentially a homologated rally car for the road. We were blown away by the Supra, well, Maybe blown away is a bit of a stretch, but it was certainly an appreciated vehicle, um, and the new GR86 looks like a brilliant follow-up to the incredibly uh, successful first model. The GR Corolla, though, might be the best of the bunch. This thing looks completely wild. It's much more Civic Type R than Golf R when it comes to design. It's larry. it's over the top, it's got a wider track, huge exaggerated arches, a big, bold body kit, a massive front grille that sucks in lots more air, and a racy diffuser with three exhausts, including a centralised one. Again, a little bit like a Civic Type R in that regard. Um, uses the same uh, insane 1.6-litre three-cylinder engine as used in the GR Yaris, uprated to 220 kilowatts, the same 370 newton meters of peak torque, but a slightly different torque band, six-speed manual gearbox only. So it's designed for people who like cars with three pedals. It's got the Torsen uh, limited slip diffs front and rear like the GR Yaris Rally Edition gets. So this thing should be insane. It's obviously a bigger car than the Yaris. Um, it it's on the same platform as the Corolla. It's not a Frankenstein platform like the Yaris is. And it's going to compete with that aforementioned Golf R, the new Civic Type R that's coming to Oz probably late this year, i30N from Hyundai, Renault Megane RS, all the usual suspects. Uh, Scott, you did a great little sort of on-paper comparison piece on Car Expert outlining how it compares to its competitors. So go check that out, guys, if you're keen. Um, but this thing is just is just remarkable. Um I think it's probably going to cost 60 grand plus when it gets here, given that the GR Yaris is between 50 and 55 before on road costs, unless they do another one of those crazy launch deals like they did on the Yaris. Mm-hmm. I highly doubt Toyota would do that twice, though. Um, but looking forward to it. This thing can send up to 70% of its torque to the rear axle, by the way. So it shouldn't drive wow. like your typical front wheel drive, lift off, oversteer, happy hot hatch. It should be something else. And hopefully, it has a better driving position than that GR Yaris as well. Hopefully, you sit a bit lower in the car so it feels a little bit more dynamic. But um, I cannot wait to see it lob. And um, based on the analytics, I was having a look at some of our site analytics before this podcast, and it's far and away the most read story on the site for the past week. It's GR, Corolla, Daylight, everything else, which is not, you know, to, to criticize any content on the site. But clearly, this is the car that people are really interested in at the moment. Um, so How, I guess how good were only... those press photos too? Oh, Fantastic. insane. Fantastic. I think the only uh, issue potentially for Toyota is going to be supply, you know, uh, uh, not just because every car is affected by supply, but because this in particular is such a niche vehicle. Uh, I imagine demand is going to be significantly higher than supply, so you can probably expect it to be pretty difficult to get your hands on one. Scott?
4: We really do live in a golden age for a very specific niche of performance cars. I know things are going electric and cars are getting expensive and supplies tight and all that sort of thing. But mm. if you do have a look at this comparo we've put together on the website, there's about eight hot hatches on sale in Australia, most of them around the $60,000 mark, which I know isn't cheap but also isn't far from what a lot of people are paying for a new car right now. And all of them have 200 kilowatts or more. There's all-wheel drive, front-wheel drive, manual, dual-clutch. There's such a variety of compact, reasonably affordable performance cars out there. It's it's kind of unheard of and it's only getting better. So. I know there's a lot of doom and gloom around new cars and what enthusiasts are going to drive, but every time I feel that way, I then think about the next Civic Type R or the GR Corolla or even the Golf R or the Cupra Leon VZX. And I'm kind of reminded of the fact that these cars are all out there and they can all be bought now or will be able to be bought very soon and they're all going to be on the used market at some point. And I feel a bit better about things. What I love about this car
1: as well is, you know, I was going to write the story from the perspective of this ain't your Nana's Corolla, because you think about Corollas and you think, oh, it's got a crappy 1.8 liter engine and a CVT and it, you know, it probably sits 20 Ks under the speed limit in the right hand lane and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, the Corolla isn't really the snore fest its reputation might suggest. I mean, it, it won its class at the Bathurst 500 Enduro in the late 60s a couple of times. It had eight consecutive class victories at Bathurst in the 80s and 90s, Neil Bates, of course, now principal of the Gazoo Racing Rally Team, um, won the 2008 Rally Championship in a Corolla with Coral Taylor. So this Corolla actually does have a little bit of a performance legacy to it, but I think nevertheless, it's going to completely change the way people see the Corolla more generally. It's not going to be renowned as just a shopping cart anymore, but something entirely different. And um, this is really in line with what the the chief of Toyota globally, Akio Ac- Toyota, has been trying to do for a long time. Akio is himself the Toyota master driver under the uh, pseudonym Marizzo son, um, and quite a gun racing driver himself. And he's been trying to really impart this DNA into Toyota for some time. And I think this is probably the best example yet that I've seen of it. So cannot wait mm me too. Um,
0: Michael, you spoke about uh, fuel last week. It's good to see the prices are already starting to drop quite a lot now, but we're going to go overseas to the USA. And uh, Scholar, you wrote this story. Uh, The US is committing to stricter fuel economy standards. However, Australia still has none.
4: Correct. Uh, We have often talked about fuel and fuel standards and fuel efficiency on this podcast, and very little has changed for Australia in that entire time. But we'll start in America, where US Transportation Secretary, I can't say this name without putting on a voice, Pete Buttigieg, has announced stricter new fuel economy standards. Um, Under the Trump administration, the US government rolled back what were once quite strict fuel uh, fuel economy standards and Under President Biden, they've now tightened them up again. By 2026, every manufacturer selling cars in the US, their passenger car and light truck combined fleets will have to average 4.8 litres per 100 kilometres, which is equivalent to 49 US miles per gallon. Um, And that essentially represents 8% uh, reduction in fleet fuel economy for 2024, 8% in 2025, and then 10% in 2026. Um, these rules will work in tandem with rules from the EPA, which mean that all of the passenger cars, so not the F-150s and the body-on-frame family SUVs, but all the cars like Corollas and that sort of thing, need to have an average of 4.3 litres per 100Ks by 2026. Um, Just to
1: give that a bit of context, Scully, sorry to interject, but no, that's, okay. that's, Cor- that's Corolla hybrid levels of fuel efficiency. So, what this means is, Aggregated, every single car that a manufacturer sells in America has to use as much fuel on, on a mean average basis as a Toyota Corolla hybrid. And when you consider that the biggest selling vehicles in America are massive, often V8-powered trucks, it's going to be <laughs> yeah. incredibly hard to do that. Which is why you are seeing more and more and more zero tailpipe emission electric cars to offset the balance. Just wanted to contextualise that, Scully. I'll throw back to you now. <laughs> you took the words
4: right out of my mouth. That's exactly where oh, I was going. It. Mike and I have been sitting opposite each other for a few years now, so this happens occasionally. Now Um, I feel rude. No, you said it better than I could have. Um, But, yeah, it it does give some context as to why a lot of car makers in the US are now releasing zero emissions cars or talking about the zero emissions cars they'll start selling in 2023 and 2024. Um, We've also put in our story the fact that, As America is getting more aggressive with its emissions rules and enforcement, as Europe's doing the same thing and a lot of the world's developed markets are getting ready to ban the internal combustion car altogether when you're talking new car sales, Australia still doesn't have any government-mandated fuel standard changes coming up, nor does it have any emission standards coming in. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of car makers have said that they can't get good supply of their latest electric cars for Australia because if you're – Volkswagen has been one of the most vocal. If you're Volkswagen, and in Europe, every gram per kilometre of CO2 you are over the fleet emissions cap, you get fined a million euros. And in Australia, there are no rules at all. You're going to sell the car that has zero emissions in Europe, where it's going to drag your fleet average down and save you millions of euros. Um, this is something that the car industry and you know various parts of it have been talking about for quite a while. And then there's a number of bodies like the EV Council, also campaigning to get emission standards introduced in Australia, but it's not something that has looked likely to happen recently uh, to the point where car makers have actually put their own voluntary emission standards in place. So it does change based on who's in power at a certain time in the US, but now the US has moved the way Europe does. Australia really is an outlier with its lack of formal emission standards and real punishment for anyone who doesn't meet them. No doubt there will come a time where manufacturers can make unlimited numbers of EVs
1: and they could send as many as were wanted to Australia. But at the moment, the reality is car manufacturers can only make so many because there are massive kinks in the production process of batteries at scale, which as you said, Scully, means that very, very, very precious suppliers are allocated to those markets that are the most financially important to allocate them to. Um, but that has so many effects on the Australian landscape when it comes to EVs, because, of course, the only way to get pricing down is to produce more and to have more choice. Choice creates competition, which drives down prices, which increases awareness. So the lack of choice in Australia, which is a direct result of the lack of supply in Australia, is what is really stopping EVs from taking off here. A fraction of, you know, a handful percent overall market share here for EVs, as opposed to more than 50% in many of the world's major markets now. So, it's a huge problem. It's not going to go away in a hurry. There will come a time where these sorts of things aren't needed. There'll be enough pull factors to get EVs. But right now, it's abundantly clear that without these EPA style or CAFE style rules, we ain't going to get much EV choice.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of EVs, MoCo, yet another one has been revealed this week, the BYD seal.
1: Yes, so the BYD Seal, uh, interesting name, S-E-A-L, like Mm. the animal. Um, Not going to be called that in Australia, I would venture. Um, BYD also makes a car called the Dolphin uh, in China, but that won't be called the Dolphin in Australia either. Just to give a bit of background here, BYD, often seen as the next Tesla. It's a Chinese company that's most famous for its electric buses and its batteries. It makes these incredibly interesting car batteries that are very, very, very state-of-the-art that a lot of manufacturers want to get their hands on. Uh, Warren Buffett is the major share holder, even though it's a Chinese company. So, you you know, it's obviously got some runs on the board. It's done a deal with an e-commerce provider in Australia called EV Direct to distribute them to Australia. It just launched its first car, the $45,000 Atto 3 electric crossover, and it's done a deal with Australia's biggest dealer group, eagers to have 20 showrooms around Australia shortly and has some insanely bold plans to be a top five overall manufacturer in Australia, which sounds frankly, like a load of bulldust. But you know what? Uh, maybe they'll do it. I'm not going to rule it out because BYD is, is certainly a legit brand. Um, and, and I wouldn't rule anything out until I actually see it happen. So the BYD SEAL uh, is a sedan uh, about the same size as the Tesla Model 3. So it's probably as of now the number one competitor to that car um, or when it lobs it'll be the number one competitor to that car alongside the Polestar 2. It's a little bit longer than the Model 3 in terms of uh, batteries well it sits on the company's new e-platform 3 as it's called with 800 volt capability for super rapid DC charging. There's a couple of different motor grades a 150 kilowatt rear motor a 230 kilowatt rear motor or a dual motor with a combined 390 kilowatts and a zero to 100 time of under four seconds, not hanging about. Um, there are some Chinese blogs talking about a 700k driving range, but I suspect that's on the uber generous Chinese driving cycle, which will not be reflected in Australia. Um, even in terms of weight and things, it's quite similar to the Tesla, and it runs the uh, NVIDIA Drive Hyperion computing architecture for its automated driving systems as well. So, this is a pretty state-of-the-art thing. Based on the sharp pricing of the Ato 3, when this car arrives in Australia by the end of 2022, it should be around the same price as that Tesla Model 3. And the really interesting thing about BYD is it's committed to producing 15,000 right-hand drive products per year per model nameplate for Australia. That's a bit confusing, but what that means is Australia will have access to as many as 15,000 right-hand drive BYD SEAL sedans in Australia per year. At least that's the plan. And we just touched on lack of supply of EVs, but this could be, along with Tesla, what really is that circuit breaker? Because it's not enough just to have an EV on sale you've actually got to have thousands of them to make a difference. So I'm pretty confident in this brand. I think there's a little bit of, you know, um, maybe some exaggerations going on, some pretty aggressive talk is going on. But at the end of the day, the cars themselves look really impressive. And, and this looks even more impressive than the Ato 3 again. So look, Not a lot of runs on the board in Australia yet. I'll have some healthy scepticism about what BYD is doing. But looking at this vehicle and looking at its plans, I think there's definitely some scope for enthusiasm too.
0: And lastly, Scully, Honda and GM are going to jointly develop EVs globally. Now, this is interesting news.
4: It is. Honda and GM have been flirting for a while. They've been out on a few dates. They've sort of dip their toe in the water with a shared battery architecture and some SUV stuff, but they're getting serious now. Um, they're taking their relationship Love to it. the next level is what Derek has put in his introduction, which I really like. Um, they've decided that they're going to co-develop a series of affordable electric vehicles based on a new global architecture using what General Motors calls Ultium battery tech. And essentially the goal is to enable production of millions of electric vehicles starting in 2027, including small SUVs, which are ultimately the cars that people are buying the most of, and we only expect that trend to continue. Um, GM says that it's going to be priced lower than the upcoming Chevy Equinox EV, and that was teased at the start of this year and is designed to go on sale for the equivalent of around Australian $40,000. So we're a long way out from this actually happening, but based on what they're talking about at the moment, Honda and GM could have their own versions of a $35,000 35 or a thirty thousand dollar electric SUV to go head to head with something like a Volkswagen T Cross, which, given where the market's at at the moment, would be a huge step forward. Um, initially, GM is going to be aiming its cars at North America, Latin America, and China, and we've already, or we're going to get to talking about the Corvette here. But we know GM has a very limited presence in Australia. Honda hasn't said anything about where its products will go, but. Pending where its business model goes in Australia, it would make sense that some of these cars could come here because Australia is, you know, a market that's quite close to Japan and we could have cars specced similarly to those Japanese cars. Um, it's not clear where they're going to be built yet. And it's also not clear what exactly the range will look like beyond that little SUV. But ultimately, this is a pretty big commitment and it's also a sign that. We already know platform sharing is a really big deal. We know that Volkswagen and Ford are doing it on commercial vehicles. We know that automotive groups like the Volkswagen Group rule the world. GM and Honda look like they really want to take this relationship further, and they've gone from working on hydrogen fuel cell tech to working on a couple of cars and some battery technology to really getting into bed on what could be one of the biggest EV deals in the world so far. So fingers crossed it pays off, and fingers crossed we get to see the fruits of it in Australia eventually. Yeah, this is super symbiotic.
1: We've we've noticed for a long time that, you know, Honda has been, I'm going to be honest here, it has been woefully behind the times when it comes to electric car rollout. It's got the Honda E electric city car, which is a extremely expensive, low range, you know, urban car like the Mini Electric. And that's about it. Honda used to be an absolute world leader in engineering, and you would have expected it to have done better, especially when you have a look at what some of the Korean brands are doing. And even some other Japanese brands are doing with their EVs. Um, But it works brilliantly for GM because the way it can make those Ultium batteries and those EV platforms even cheaper is to make even more of them. And the best way to make even more of them is to badge them as Hondas. So it's the ultimate symbiosis. Honda gets an immediate shortcut into having some proper electric cars and GM can make its own EVs cheaper. Um, And I think you're going to see a heck of a lot more than that. If there is any manufacturer out there that doesn't have a really cohesive ev plan you can probably guess that it's working on a joint venture behind the scenes somewhere to do a shortcut just like this
0: (laughs) awesome stuff Uh, you can read more news at carexpert.com.au we're going to move over to march v facts now the new car sales figures for last month how did demand go for last month moco
1: No, demand was through the roof, Mandy, but that doesn't mean sales or deliveries were because you've got to have cars on the ground for that. Um, No, look, it wasn't as – it actually, you know, for all of the constant complaining and doom and gloom that we hear from manufacturers and, you know, we know that 12-month wait lists are out there and we know that supplies are short. Anyone who's tried to buy a car lately would know that. Nevertheless, 102,233 cars were counted as sold, cross-checked against registration data for the month of March, um, which was slightly up on the equivalent month in uh, 2021. The year-to-date quarterly tally is slightly down by half a percent, but not a huge tragedy, I wouldn't have thought. Toyota, obviously, the number one brand, as always, 21% market share ahead of Mazda. Mitsubishi in third, Hyundai, and then Kia, in the fifth position, Hyundai being in the fourth position. The Hilux and RAV4 were the number one and number two vehicles ahead of the Mitsubishi Triton Master CX-5. And here's the big one, the Tesla Model 3 in fifth place and the number one passenger vehicle in the country for the month of March, although Tesla does tend to deliver vehicles in big gluts. So you're probably going to see some pretty significant spikes and some pretty significant drops. It's not going to be that consistent monthly uh, tally you'll see from Tesla. What's interesting is that Tesla's never submitted its sales to VFAX before. VFAX is uh, put together by the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, which is the peak body for all the car manufacturers. And Tesla has long said, nah, we don't want to take part. And it's been incredibly frustrating because we've all known that Tesla is the dominant player in the EV space. So without it, the figures are essentially meaningless when it comes to electric car sales. So it's good that Tesla's got on board. Um, The company revealed that it's sold nearly 4,500 cars so far this year, which makes it a major player and accounts for about two-thirds of every single EV sold in the market, which gives you an idea of just how successful that vehicle is.
0: Uh, Can you give us a rundown of the top brands for last month?
1: Yeah, so Toyota, as I said before, just under 22% share. That's um, 21,800 sales for the month. Um, Mazda, just over 11,000 sales in second place. Mitsubishi had a great month. Triton and Pajero Sport, they must have got a couple of shipments in because uh, they had absolutely huge performances for the month. Um, Just over 9,000 cars sold for that brand. Hyundai, 6,500, and Kia, just over 6,000 for the top five. Next were Ford, MG, Isuzu, Ute, Nissan, and then Tesla which actually made the top 10 for March uh, and relegated Volkswagen to 11th and Mercedes-Benz to 12th. I think the fact that Tesla outsold Volkswagen and Mercedes-Benz in a month is something that might make those two latter companies scratch their heads just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of brands that saw their sales really decline at the highest rates were Subaru down 46%, Mini down 44%, Honda down 36.5% and and we're getting used to saying Honda is going down lately. Um, Audi down 33% and Skoda down 31%. Again, it's only one month. Again, it doesn't represent a trend but clearly those brands have got a couple of concerns. When it comes to models, RAV4 are number... Two Hilux number one, RAV4 number two, Triton three, CX five four, and Model three from Tesla in fifth place. Um, pretty much the usual suspects, other than that. Um, there weren't a great deal of sort of shocking results this month aside, really, from that EV uptake. Um, there were 5,532 electric cars sold compared to seven and a half thousand hybrids and uh, only 427 plug in hybrids for the month. So, Australians are definitely when it comes to saving fuel and lowering their CO2 emissions, choosing regular hybrids or electric vehicles and essentially ignoring plug-in hybrids. (laughs) So make of that what you will. Scott.
4: Moco, the Model 3 is comfortably the best-selling electric car in Australia and it's a sedan, which is a body style that absolutely no one wants. Um, The Model Y is expected to launch around the middle of this year, maybe later in the year. Mm. Who else could Tesla jump past if it can get supply of the Model Y going? Because there's a lot of potential there.
1: Yeah, so let's say that this year, Tesla, based on its quarterly sales of the Model 3, will be able to deliver about 16,000 Shanghai-produced Model 3s. Let's say, as projected, the Model Y is more popular, but assume that's going to cannibalize the Model 3 to some degree. Tesla could be looking at, hypothetically, maybe 30,000 sales, 25,000 sales. You're knocking on the door of the top 10 brands at that point. I mean, you're no longer a niche outlier brand. You are up there with the Subarus and the Hondas and the Suzuki's and the Mercedes Benz's and potentially even Volkswagen's of the world. So it's a bit early to say that Tesla's going to take over the market and be number one. I know Elon recently said 10 or 20 million sales a year. Elon, uh, not not known for his um, hyperbolic speech on Twitter, Um, but you know, I can easily see Tesla storming up the charts, Um, and I just think for the market in general, it's really good news that Tesla has finally come to the table here and supplied its sales figures, because it's a key economic indicator, car sales, and it's also a key indicator of how Australians are embracing environmentally friendly tech and with those numbers it's a heck of a lot easier than it was that being said i will make one final point which is on the other side of the uh, coin um the nissan patrol v8 also had its all-time biggest month (laughs) sold more than 900 for the month outsold the toyota land cruiser 300 series which is supply constrained but then again so is the patrol this is a car that on the adr cycle uses 14.4 liters every 100 In real driving, you could probably get it closer to 20. Um, It's an awesome car, the Patrol. I absolutely love it, but it's a guzzler if ever there was one. It's interesting that at this particular juncture, that car had its record month. Uh, Not only does it go completely opposite to the grain around, you know, EVs and Tesla and hybrids and all that, but just the running costs must be through the roof at the moment. But,
4: hey, nevertheless, more power to people. What better way to celebrate a cut in fuel excise than pouring a ton more money into fuel tank every month? (laughs) <laughs> uh, to each their own. It's an
1: awesome car, I get it. But, man, I, I don't fancy the fuel bills. <laughs>
4: <laughs> if anyone
0: has any any more questions about Vfax Mocha, can they get in touch with you?
1: They really can. So, um, I don't know why I said really there. They can. Um, the, the, there's actually um, the comment thread under my monthly stories on Vfax. So, that's the letter V, facts, um, is essentially like a, an, uh, an ask me anything section. So, just write your question if it's about the sales of a particular car or anything you're really thinking, and I'll get back to you and answer it as quickly as I can. So pop in there, hit up the comments, and we'll get back to you.
4: Joining us is Easton Chang, who is a gun photographer and also an Australian and a nice guy to talk to. Easton, thanks for taking the time to chat to us. Thanks for having me. So, Easton, you've been doing some work with Gran Turismo 7 on recreating some of your shots in the game Scapes Function. I actually haven't had a crack at the game yet, although I'm really keen because I'm a bit of a gamer from way back. How have you gone about making your photos stand out in the virtual world?
3: Um, It's the thing is in, uh, well, first of all, Gran Turismo goes way back for me. I played the very first Gran Turismo when it came out. Um, I think it was in 1997 and I think I was 14 years old. So, that was peak gaming time for me growing up. So, it's such a nostalgic trip playing Gran Turismo 7 because there's so many little elements that they've put in there as Easter eggs that harks back to the original game. Like the original, some original tracks are back in the game now as well. Um, but- Shooting in the virtual world is just, it's really remarkable because in such a sense, coming from an experienced car photographer, it's like you're playing God because you can control weather events, you can control location, you can control um, you know, your camera settings, the car, you can move things around. As you know, um, at Car Expert, shooting cars in in real life is a logistical challenge at best. Um, you need to move the car just a, a tiny bit clockwise in position. And, you know, you, you're moving the car left hand down, right hand down, back and forwards, and you've got someone directing you. With the controller in scapes, you can just do it you know, within a millisecond and you can refine it exactly as you want. So, it's an interesting – it's a really interesting experience because, you know, as a photographer, especially car photography, it's such a technical exercise as well and you're limited so much by physical and technical limitations. Um, And when you're shooting in a virtual world, all those technical limitations just disappear.
4: So it's interesting you talk about it as shooting in a virtual world, because I know even photography in away from the game is increasingly going down a path of being able to edit however you want and really manipulate lighting, maybe in ways you couldn't previously. Um, is there some crossover between your job outside of the game and what you're doing inside the game now, or is it something entirely different?
3: I think in the real world, uh, car photography goes through a lot of different trends and phases and i've been in the world of car photography for 20 years now so i've actually been privileged enough to have seen multiple trends come and go in car photography and so what i do in a game is to try to recreate some of the more current trends which is the more natural lighting less motion blur and action shots Um, we all go through these different trends and the look that we go through right now in car photography is a lot more natural um, Mm -hmm. but also more action-oriented and you can do that in the game as well. For instance, my favorite mode in Gran Turismo 7 is actually in race replay photo mode because you can move the camera anywhere you want and I'm playing God doing things that I wouldn't be able to do in real life. Um, For instance, putting the camera just inches behind a rear tire of a car drifting around the corner on Willow Springs or or uh, Mount Panorama. You couldn't do that in real life. So, in relation to reality, it's kind of sad because it's great in that there are so many things that I can do in the game that I can do in real life. There's also a lot of things that, that I can do in the game that I can't do in real life.
4: Gotcha. And I suppose while we're talking Gran Turismo and before we get to some of your other work, is there a particular shot that you've taken in the game or something that you've been able to recreate in the game that's been like a dream of yours that maybe you aren't able to do in the real world because it's the real world and you can't put yourself on the bottom of the chase at 300 Ks an hour on the outside wheel, for example?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, Doing that kind of speed on, say, Conrad Strait on Mount Panorama, which is in the game, whilst I can go to Mount Panorama and I can take shots, um, you know, I can't shoot a Porsche GT3 RS running down Conrad Strait um, as a as a chase drone shot in real life, for instance. I, I wish I could and if you if you have the resources behind you, sometimes a client will invest for you to do something like that Um, But in the game, you can just fire it up, chuck the car in the game, do whatever you want driving in the game to manufacture the position of the car and the pose and the action that it's doing. Um, And then in race replay mode, I just position the camera as I want and I can recreate those exact shots.
4: In the real world, your list of clients is some of the world's most exclusive and high-end brands. There's one shoot in particular I'm really curious about, and it was with Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes-Benz. What was he like to work with, and how do you go about trying to get the essence of someone so complicated into just a couple of still photos?
3: Yeah, shooting celebrities is something that you really need to be uh, preemptive and organized about since they're so... um, so low on time usually your window of opportunity to work with them it's not like when you have a monopoly with a car or when you have a monopoly of time with just general talent and models in general Um, when you're working with a celebrity of the caliber of Lewis Hamilton you really have to be very efficient with time and um, and resources. So, we try to have everything ready and organized as much as possible beforehand. So, rather than having, say, a three-hour window doing a shoot and you're kind of umming and 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 figuring out your angles and your composition and setting up your lighting and then taking the shot and then changing and repeating the same process. With Lewis, it was a situation where we... Prepared and pre-organized everything as much as possible first, using my assistant as a stand-in model, um, positioning the lights, making sure everything was as close to ready as possible so that once he, was, once he was available, he just goes into the spot and we just try to nail out the shots as much as possible. Um, he was really good to work with. Um he apparently was having a really good day in Melbourne. I mean the weather was beautiful. Um, you know, he was by the beachside, blue skies, perfect temperature. It was just a really beautiful day. And I think you could really see in Lewis's expression and his mood in a day that you know he was he was really happy to be there.
4: And some of the other photos you've taken are of Cars in some unique or interesting locations. I'm looking at your portfolio now and you've got a Mercedes X-Class coming over what looks like a hill in a quarry. You've got a Tesla Model 3 surrounded by kangaroos. How much scouting and preparation goes into getting a shot like that? And how do you go dealing with clients that are presumably very specific about what they want and not exactly willing to fail?
3: Um, the truth be told, in automotive photography, there is such a variety of of prerequisites from clients. Um, One thing that I like to, going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but one thing that I like to educate clients on is that when it comes to budgets and costs, um, the key word to me is specificity. So the more specific a client needs to be, the more expensive and the more the budget blows out. The less specific they need to be, the cheaper and logistically easier it becomes. Now, that has nothing to do with um, how good quality the shot will be. For instance, if we were to shoot the, the Tesla surrounded by the kangaroos um, and the client was very specific about it being shot in you know sunset lighting, on a clear sky, then the day of the shoot, it might be overcast, in which case we can't shoot, right? You have to be very specific. The client might be very specific about the exact position, the exact angle. So, the more specific they want to be, it doesn't mean the shot looks better. I mean, it could have looked best in overcast day, but because the client was being specific about the location or the time or the weather of the shots, that makes shots a lot more unaffordable a lot more difficult and therefore a lot more expensive to do and so every client is different some clients you know the job is requires a lot of specificity which makes the shoot expensive um, and a lot of shoots doesn't have that specificity which makes the shoot you know, more of a, a PR or a corporate kind of a shoot rather than high-end advertising. Um, but that doesn't necessarily show in the results in the photos. You, you can look at the photos and it's really difficult to tell whether it was done on a budget or whether it was done really expensive because it comes down to specificity. And I can tell you that for example, the X class was shot with a great deal of specificity. It needed to be an exact angle. It needed to be an exact kind of location. So for that kind of shoot, we have you know large production companies that we work with, and they work with um, scouting, uh, companies who will basically go do file pulls and look up location options, um, and actually a scout will go to different location options that we narrow down, and of course you're liaising with the client the whole process through until we find the perfect location. We look at weather; we have weather contingencies, um, and you know obviously we're shooting the camera tethered, and you know the client is there. We've got creative there. Um, everything has to be double-checked, everything has to be scrutinized. And these are literally shots where you are spending an entire day to capture one frame. Um, And then on the other end of the extreme, you've got shoots like the Tesla and the Tesla was not shot under that much specificity. There was some degree of specificity. Uh, They really wanted the Australian feel and flavor to illustrate the fact that the Tesla Model 3 has now arrived in Australia. And what more of an illustration of Australiana <laughs> can you have then, then that shot there. And I just happened to know that location at the time, and I knew that there were reasonably tame kangaroos in that area that get really curious. Um, and, you know, with the magic of locking down cameras and blending exposures and, and just luck, you um, you know, we managed to capture what we managed to capture, but that was just going to be what it was going to be. So, the Tesla shot is much more natural, authentic photography where you capture things as it comes. Whereas the X-Class Mercedes shoot is much more manufactured and choreographed by comparison because, again, I come back to that word specificity.
4: Is there a particular shoot or shot that you're most proud of? I can imagine you've had some pretty interesting ones over your career.
3: To date, my favourite shoot of all is still for Porsche Cars Australia, the 918 Spyder in the Outback. Um, nothing has topped that to me since, you know, as a car guy, as a photographer, you know, as an Australian as well. This is just – it, and the shoot itself was – so much of an Eastern Chang style shoot, and retouched and shot in a way that is so complementary to my style of shooting. You know, this shoot complemented my work, and my work complemented this shoot. Um, you know, I remember this was before Stuart Highway was was locked down again with um with limited speed limits, with fixed speed signs again. Um, I remember going out there and. You know, I, I was there with Craig Baird driving and, you know, the car did 350 kilometers an hour <laughs> with me in the passenger seat and I was just holding this camera, getting the shot. And uh, right after that was done, I remember my hands all kind of shaky coming out of the car because 350 on, a, on a, essentially a public road, uh, it, it's a insane. Very, very like, fast. It, yeah, it's very – everything is just so violent. I remember my hands shaking as I got out and then they're like, yep, all right, well, the whole helicopter's here. So, now you jump on the helicopter and you grab your shots. And this was before, you know, everyone had drones and was shooting, you know, with drones and nobody needed helicopters anymore. And I strapped myself off a helicopter, door open and just leaning out shooting and um, you know you're just in your element you're in your photography mode and you're just yelling out you know more donuts more donuts go on that road there go on that road there and it was incredible everything about it was just so good and it's my favorite for so many reasons not just because of the car the circumstances the style the outback the red earth but it was a very natural raw authentic shoot it wasn't choreographed like yeah we had some ideas and we you know but those ideas were just guiding us on where we would go and what we would try out but it was just a matter of having fun and you know guiding this car to do some cool stuff and we just captured it and we just went like that and, and to me that that summarizes peak car photography where it's that perfect blend that perfect balance um of Authentic car porn, and just being a car photographer and capturing it. But you know, it's not event photography either. It's not car spotting where you're in London and you you, know, you grab some shots of a of a Rolls Royce on the side of the road. It's not like you're at a car show. It's not like motorsport where you know you're in a pits and you're grabbing whatever you can. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm a staged, choreographed mm-hmm. photographer. I create. Eye candy, and sometimes I have to manufacture eye candy to do it for my clients. But this is a situation where everything is just there. Yes, I have a little bit of control over the situation, but I'm just there to make cool stuff happen and just capture it. And everything is captured organically and real and raw. And, you know, I just can't see that getting topped ever
4: that's pretty cool i could talk to you for hours about this but i realize we are time limited i suppose to tie it all together do you have any tips for people who are trying to kind of hone their craft either in the virtual world in gran turismo or in the real world about how to improve their photography and maybe nail down a sense of what they actually want to do like you so clearly have
3: so one of my favorite quotes not my quote but You know, a quote that I really like when I read about it many, many years ago is that photography is the most scientific of the arts and the most artistic of the sciences. And that summarizes the fact that in photography, especially car photography, you really need to have those skills in the technical prowess and expertise. And that means gear, equipment, Photoshop, tools, camera settings, lens knowledge, all that kind of stuff. But then the other side of it is the creativity. Um, you can only create as well as you can envision yourself in your mind, especially in you know more choreographed car photography like what I do. So, you know, the way I like to think about it is that your creative vision is your potential, and your technical prowess is your ability to implement that creative vision so you can have an amazing creative vision but if you don't have the technical know-how prowess or equipment or access then you're limited in your ability to realize and implement that but on the opposite end of the spectrum you can be someone who has all the equipment and all the gear and all the knowledge um, but no creative vibe Um, and i like to call those people um camera enthusiasts rather than photography enthusiasts because they're people who are just into cameras and talk about bokeh and how sharp it is and how many megapixels they've got, but they're not really enthusiastic about photography. So, um, you know, in scapes, scapes is, I think, for a car photographer, for a serious up-and-coming car photographer, scapes is a really invaluable tool because, It allows you to shoot without those creative limitations, which a lot of starting photographers have issues with. Not everyone can start their first shoot with a Ferrari Enzo. Mm -hmm. I, I have a colleague I know of, a car photographer specifically, who started at a similar time to me and his very first shoot was with his mate's mate who had a Ferrari Enzo. So he practiced shooting with a Ferrari Enzo. And not everyone can do things like that. Not everyone has that kind of access. So Gran Turismo overcomes those technical limitations to allow you to refine your creative vision, your ability to compose and see images and and to hone and refine your eye um, which is which is excellent, and it's an excellent tool for doing things like that. Um, however, in the real world, in photography, unfortunately, you do have those technical limitations, and so at some point, you do still have to learn Photoshop, cameras, camera settings, flash, lighting, all those kinds of things. But the creative aspect of it, you can most certainly refine and mature and hone your creative vision and your eye in things like scapes
4: awesome easton thank you for taking the time we've put a link to easton's portfolio and his socials in our podcast post at carexpert.com.au so make sure if you do want to know more or just to feast your eyes on some fantastic car photography you head and check it out easton thanks for taking the time no worries thanks so much for having me
0: Hello, Tony Crawford. I'm Eddie. How are you? Very good, thank you. Now that you're pretty, well, you were pretty excited after your time behind the wheel of the C8 Corvette. I, I've known you've you've mentioned this in the past. You saw it for the first time in the metal a few weeks ago, and you're a little bit polarized.
2: Yeah, in the states, we saw a couple of them, um, and. Uh, someone said, I think Mike Harley, one of our colleagues in the U.S., said, oh, it's heavy, it's wide. it's..." And then so we, we, we had some sort of, uh, I guess, negative impressions of the car, which is always dangerous when you hear it from someone else. Um, and, of course, you know, uh, the opportunity came up to get a drive in Sydney. The only one that's actually in New South Wales, I believe, uh, this uh, gray um, with uh, some white uh, racing stripes and uh, or gray racing stripes on gray on gray actually um, and I, I was started to get really excited you know like you start looking at the top line numbers of this thing. First of all it's a mid-engine supercar let's not pull any punches here um, it competes uh, Corvette have always tried to emulate Ferrari. And finally, they've ditched the front engine, the big front engine uh, or small block front engine, and they've gone with the mid-engine supercar layout, which is they said they'd exploited everything they could do with the front engine supercar. So that there was nowhere to go except join the Europeans. And I tell you what, uh, right from the get go, I, I, I don't think it's as good looking as the, something like the 296 GTB that I was lucky enough to drive before this. I had a really good benchmark um, because, as you all know, that that car I raved about was one of the best, best, probably the best Ferrari to come out of Maranello in the last decade and one of the best mid engine supercars I've ever driven. Uh, for its grip and its feel and its agility. Now, getting into this American supercar, which is like this is crazy, but it starts at $144,000 Aussie dollars plus on roads. This particular one, which was um, the the highest or, or a higher trim level called the 3LT, the, the, the entry level is a 2LT. I'm not quite sure what all that means. But anyway, it's a trim level and um, it comes with more kit and they all come into Australia with the, z, the Z51 z uh, performance pack, which gets a bunch of uh, high-performance stuff, um, like like sports seats and a whole bunch of other stuff. But, um, you know, the top-line numbers are insane, Not to 100 in 2.9 seconds. That's equal to the 296 GTB and a whole bunch of other, you know, super-fast cars, um, like the 812 Superfast, uh, Ferrari Superfast is also uh, 3, 2.9 seconds, 0 to 100
4: Oh, mate, I'm just wondering if it feels that fast because I've read and heard overseas that the numbers don't necessarily match the experience. So when you're driving it, does it like punch you in the face with how quick it is like maybe an 812 does?
2: Well, it's it's a good question because I thought the same thing actually. Um, but it just depends on how many revs you've got and what you're doing with the car at the time. I took a couple of people for rides and one time we blasted up one of the steepest hills in Sydney and I was in third gear and punched it from third, and it felt like a freaking supercar. And we went, we hit some corners, and it, it, there's no body roll whatsoever, and it's got different driving modes. So you start out in touring, you go to sport, and then I think there's track. So I drove it around in track because, funnily enough, there isn't a a exhaust button. It is a dual mode exhaust, but there's no actual exhaust button, which I think is a short. Uh, 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 a, a short sightedness of, of those guys because everyone else does a does a does an exhaust button these days because you don't need you, you don't want to be driving in track mode just to get some some volume out of the uh, some more decibels out of the exhaust note uh, but you have to in this so hopefully they'll change that on the next iteration but yeah well, um to answer your question in short it's a properly quick car but I agree it didn't have that that ferocious punch that the Ferrari did. I won't say ferocious because it is ferocious and the noise is good when the revs are up at about 5,000. Um, this red line's at about 6,500, by the way. Um, the Ferrari red, red line's at about 8,500. 8, uh, so it's a, it's a different type of engine. Um, but they are, let me just, and a side kick, the next iteration. Oh, by the way, for people that want to buy these things, and that's me included, you can't get one. Okay, because the first 229 or 230 or 240, that number seems to vary, uh, are gone, were gone before they virtually even went online. Effectively, they're trying to get more allocation for the second allocation, um, but they don't know and they're working on that now. I've already asked them, can I buy a Z06? Because that folks, has a 5.5-litre flat-plane crank racing engine from the CR8 racing car. And that's a whole different ball game because that red line's at 8,600 RPM. That's insane. Um, and, and that car will probably do 2.7 naught to 100. So that's 911 Turbo Territory or Turbo S Territory for that matter. Um, and that will probably be for around 200 or just under. So these guys have produced a mid-engine supercar, General Motors, that everyone can drive. It's a very easy car to drive, Scott, and I'd say the ride comfort is actually better than the Ferrari in terms of absorbing the shitty roads that Sydney has at the moment with all this rain, and there are so many potholes, but this car just soaks it all up, And and it even does that in track mode. It's still, it obviously goes stiffer because it's magneride suspension, which works on the viscosity, the thickness or the viscosity of the liquid in the dampers. So, you know, at the touch of a button, you you are basically in a very stiff mode, which stops any body roll that wasn't there in the first place anyway, even in Turing
1: mode. Croft, I think we've overlooked one of the most interesting aspects of this car, which is... You know, and this is, you know, you're more into the way supercars drive. I'm more into the stories that happen behind the scenes. And I guess it reflects that because I'm fascinated that this car is actually made right hand drive in Bowling Green, Kentucky, at the General Motors plant. It's not converted to right-hand drive here like the Chevrolet Silverados are, which is really interesting. But it's also fascinating that this is sold officially by a subsidiary of General Motors, GMSV, in Australia. And I find that really interesting because General Motors basically left Australia when Holden died, and now it's come back and it's offering this mid-engine supercar. So there's actually a bit more of an Aussie connection. And then you touch on the next point, which is that the chief... Designer for General Motors is Mike Simcoe, who was the chief designer of Holden. So this car was designed under the guidance of an Aussie. is made in right-hand drive for Australia at the factory and is sold through an official GM operation, which is super interesting. Because when you think about Corvettes, you think about you know someone bringing one in on a boat and then converting it here and having to yeah. go through all these hoops. Yeah. Completely gone now, right?
2: Hundred percent. Well, let's just say it's Aussie design then, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> said, like, effectively it's not wrong saying that <laughs> it is aussie designed by an aussie and Dirty. i'm pretty sure he hasn't given up his citizenship um <laughs> you know i think this is they've really pivoted here and they've really turned uh, turned a corner and they and i think the z06 will really give the ferrari and the lamborghini uh Auracan and whatever comes after the Uracan a run for its money and for God's sake, for under two hundred Australian two hundred thousand Australian dollars to produce you know, don't forget the Ferrari I was driving was five hundred and sixty eight thousand four hundred plus on roads. You're talking three times the, uh. the cost of this car. Um, you know, I just think General Motors should be applauded, and as Moko said, to buy it in right hand drive factory that's the huge plus with this car and mm-hmm. that's why I bought the bullet and not anything else because it was a factory right hand drive car. And I, I'm not really into the conversions and I do, I do believe the, um, the Silverado is good. Certainly the Ram is good. But I'm, I, I would just rather have that, I, I, you know, driving that car knowing it's made that way and there's no compromises to the rigidity or the engineering um, certainly pleases me. And I think it obviously pleases everyone else. I just think they, I just hope they can get more numbers I really yeah. do because I think there's so many people. So let's hope um General Motors can satisfy the legions of muscle car fans in Australia that want a mid-engine supercar for 160 grand because honestly you can spend 160 grand on options with Ferrari. <laughs> it's true, not that. True.
0: Hard. <laughs> does it um, does it feel like a supercar on the inside as well?
2: Yeah, I was uh, I was pretty shocked. I mean, it you know, there's something Americana about the interior, but um, the leather, the leather work and the stitched leather and the entire dashes leather, um, they've got this row of buttons I was talking about on a bridge that's about probably three or four mil wide. It's amazing. And um, I know people are going away from buttons now, from hard school r- real buttons, but this thing is just amazing. You get, it's got your heated Seats and your cooled seats and your air conditioning controls basically and your, and your temperatures, that's about it. Um, but everything, you quickly get to know it within a couple of minutes and, you know, you just know where to go for these shortcut buttons and, you know, there's, there's, um, it's got, they've taken a leaf out of Lamborghini uh, Aventador and they've got these sort of um, triggers that you pull to engage drive or reverse or park. Um, so it's kind of cool. They've taken they, – they've looked at – they've obviously benchmarked every single one of of, of the uh, mid-engine supercars in Europe, and they've taken little leaves. And then why wouldn't you? They all do it. Uh, nothing's uh, – nothing's, uh, everything's a little bit generic when it comes to design. They all take leaves out of either their old cars or their competitors. So these guys have done a little bit the same um uh, uh, it's fantastic it's got everything you would want in a car the 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 um, what really um, sets this car apart is the driver centric and I do mean driver centric this is probably the most driver centric um, screen and cockpit I've ever seen. It is just for you, the driver um, the passenger is just the passenger and <laughs> the driver has everything and and the ergonomics are fantastic the this had the optional, um, I think they're called, uh, I was going to say racing seats. That's not quite the name, I'm sorry, but um, it's something like that. It's something synonymous with racing. And um, these are apparently about 11 grand. I haven't seen the standard seats and I don't think they're there. Um, Paul uh, Merrick will will video this car and there's a blue there's a blue coupe and a red convertible I think down in, in Victoria at the moment. but that's about it. there's only three cars and these are late model prototypes so they're not they're not a hundred percent production series cars these ones but I tell you what they felt like they were. Um, no complaints from me. I'm just about to start the review in fact tonight so I actually can't wait because um, again I, I just can't believe you can build a car with this much performance and And with this much kit for one hundred and sixty grand, it's yeah. just uh, it boggles the mind to be honest, and you know you just got to take your hats off to General Motors to actually make this happen because you know they don't have to I'm sure there's plenty of demand in the states that would have taken that the the number of cars that we're getting, and they would have been able to fulfill more u s orders. but you know someone out there made the call, and um hopefully Mike Simcoe had something to do with that. And uh, and in fact, the old uh, and the current General Motors boss Moco isn't—he was a big fan of Australia too, right?
1: President Mark Royce, yeah, yes. he ran Holden. Uh, so there was a there was a, a sort of conga line of Holden. One of the reasons Holden was so great for GM was because it was a microcosm of a global company here with a factory and you know a sales division all that. They used to use it as a training ground for their global executives. So Alan Beatty and Mark Royce and like Simcoe, a number of the senior most GM people spent time running Holden or doing things at Holden. So Mark Royce is a huge fan. But at the end of the day, money talks. And uh, they'll only do it if there's money to be made. (laughs) So let's not let romance get in the way too much.
2: Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I've got to tell you, I must have taken, you know, in all fairness, I probably took six people for rides and I had this nice little loop. I I tell you what, people were literally – asking me, what is the phone number to order one of these vehicles? Can you help me get one? And I, I had to say to them, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling too. When I asked Ed Finn, who's the um, GM SV guy in New Zealand, When I sent him a text saying, "Dude, how how do I buy one of these?" He said, "Tony, it's not that easy." So I'm figuring I've got a I've got a bit of a a bit of an uphill battle to get a Z06, which hasn't even been sort of talked about yet in terms of Australia. So that's how hard it is going to be getting your hands on one of these cars. So.
0: I'm sure, like once the allocations are are increased, we'll probably see quite a few of them on the road. Um, so yeah, yeah I, really well, hope.
2: I think the delivery of the first two hundred and thirty has started in March. Okay. Um, I was told. So yeah, get ready to see plenty of them. All right,
0: that sounds like a good wrap up there. You can keep your eye on Car Expert for that review that'll be up soon because Crawford has to write it tonight. Thank you, Tony Crawford.
2: Thanks a lot, Mandy, and thanks Scott. Thanks, Boko.
0: All right, that's an end for this week's podcast. What cars are coming up in the garage next week, Scully?
4: We have, as always, an eclectic mix. Uh, We've got a Hyundai Staria Highlander all-wheel drive diesel, a Volvo SC B5 inscription, and then the one that I'm actually more interested in is the Havel H6 Ultra Hybrid. This thing is significantly more powerful than a RAV4 and is front-wheel drive only. So who knows what that's going to be like. Uh, Up in Brisbane, we've got the Polestar 2 long-range dual motor, um, and Kurt up in Sydney is driving the Genesis G80 2.5 Sport line, which is one of the really, really interesting, cool-looking cars on the market in Australia, even though it's a little bit niche.
0: Yeah. I just saw the uh, – was it the G80 Shooting Brake review just go live as well? G70. G70, sorry. Yes, close. Um, and some events and launches we've got coming up as well.
4: So there's a bit going on, actually. Now that the borders are open and COVID is – Kind of touch wood, keeping, a you know, not doing crazy things to us like it was. Uh, there's a bit of international travel. Alborz is off to LA to drive the Range Rover, the new one, which is really interesting. I can't wait to see what he thinks of it. I've mm. uh, also got Mike off to Tasmania to drive the Lexus LX, the big Lexus Land Cruiser. So...
1: On that theme, it's actually the Japanese Range Rover. So Alborz is driving the real thing, and I'm driving the uh, I'm driving the Japanese version. And just quietly, I would rather the Lexus.
4: <laughs> I'll let you and Alborz fight that one out.
0: <laughs> oh, and that's it for this week.
4: Pretty much, yeah. There's a lot and- of people going to the Grand Prix and doing things around that. Uh, I'm actually going to have a chat with Aston Martin and check out a clay model of the new Valhalla mid-engine supercar, which is going to be really interesting. Um, but yeah. Mike and Al are the two ones who are jet-setting next week and then we've got Easter.
0: Oh, we do too. Wow, fantastic. Well, congratulations to the insert name winner of the Australian Grand Prix. (laughs) Uh, Mike Costello and Scott Colley, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Mandy. We were both waiting to say thank you and and it was like 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 a standoff (laughs) as to who was going to do it first. (laughs) Thank you, Mandy. (laughs)